0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, a Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take first hand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, a Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, noncompliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, Order, Badge, Throwdown Weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists and anyone with an open mind on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence and of police. Police, a field guide. By David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Fifty years ago, a rather mainstream group of high-profile Americans declared the following. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Reaction to last summer's disorders has quickened the movement and deepened the division. Discrimination and segregation have long permeated much of American life. Now they threaten the future of every American. This deepening racial division is not inevitable the movement apart can be reversed. Choice is still possible. Our principal task is to define that choice and to press for a national resolution. That was the Kerner Commission, established by President Johnson in the wake of urban uprisings and riots in the late 1960s. It embodied left liberalism at its most bold and idealistic best. But that notion of radical reform was eviscerated, by the American War on Vietnam, the rise of neoliberalism and the modern conservative movement, and liberal triangulation that reached its apotheosis under Bill Clinton. My guest today is Vanessa A.B., a consumer protection lawyer in D.C. and a social media editor for Current Affairs magazine, to which she regularly contributes essays. She recently wrote a sharp retrospective essay for New York magazine, on the occasion of the Kerner Report's fiftieth anniversary, and that's what we're going to discuss today. Quick note: we've got an excellent weekly newsletter for our supporters at Patreon.com/slash/TheDig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/TheDig. Without further delay, here's Vanessa A.B. Vanessa A.B., welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start with the the basics. What was the Kerner Commission? How was it established? And what situation in the United States was it responding to?
1: The Kerner Commission was an 11-member commission um, that was put together by President Lyndon Johnson It was officially titled the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorder. Um, But it was chaired by Otto Kerner, who was the governor of Illinois from 61 to 68. And so it sort of became known as the Kerner Commission. Um, And it was not very diverse. It was, you know, 10 men, one woman, two Black people. um, And it was a bunch of moderates, some politicians, um, some. Businessmen mostly. Um, and it was and the executive order that created the commission was signed on July 29th, 1967. And it was Johnson's response to what I think is commonly referred to as America's Long Hot Summer, which um refers to just this wave of violent protests that happened all across the United States um, the summer of 1967. They were um, 100 and over 150 um and i i guess we could call them riots and unfortunately that's something that i do in my own um piece but i I think between you and me and your listeners i don't think it's a very helpful word um because it it obscures the fact that these uprisings were very rational and justified and they were um you know, calling attention to real demeaning material conditions Um, and much like many of the contemporary protests that we saw led by Black Lives Matter and other social justice minded groups, um, you know, they were often triggered by really violent or humiliating, humiliating acts that were um, committed against Black citizens. So the commission was really created in the... And just
0: to interject briefly, the police response to these riots slash uprisings was incredibly lethal, not to police, but to, to the black people in the streets.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And there was, it was, yeah, a very violent response, very militarized. The National Guard was deployed and it just really escalated tensions in most instances um and and so the executive order to create the commission really was happening in the midst of the unrest so for instance it was you know signed on July 29th um and detroit had just emerged from a 5 day um you know 5 days of unrest just that had just ended on July 28th and left you know 43 people dead the next day the day after executive order was signed, um, an uprising would start in Milwaukee, and that would go on through like August 3rd. So Johnson is out there literally trying to put out fires with this commission.
0: So what did Johnson want out of the commission? And what did the commission actually end up finding in its report and proposing?
1: I think Johnson really wants to look like he's doing something, anything. Um, He's a Democrat with a presidential election coming up the following year, Um, but he's escalated the Vietnam War. He's got half a million Americans stationed out there um, and he's got a growing anti-war movement on his hands. Um, And so his political capital is stretched pretty thin And he's not really in a position to ask much for Congress, from Congress at this point. Um, And this is is a
0: few years into the Great Society. And I think conservatives are saying, look, you know, you've given black people all these civil rights and now these expanded economic rights and and, and look what they're doing.
1: He's in such a different position from where he was three years earlier when, you know, he somehow got Congress to support him to sign, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Great Society program that you just mentioned. Um, So, so like what he really wants, what Johnson really wants to hear is, and what he wants the American public to hear is, you know, he sort of wants to counter what the conservatives are putting out there. He wants the report to conclude that government is doing a pretty good job (laughs) Um, And, you know, to be fair to him, I mean, the goals of the Great Society programs are admirable, right? He tried to expand the social safety net by increasing funding for Medicare and Medicaid. And then with the Civil Rights Act of 64, he um, sought to, or the act sought to eliminate and prohibit um, discrimination in public spaces and, and in employment. but for reasons that I think were not entirely in his control, like the results did fail, like they did fail to trickle down very quickly, if at all. So like the great society programs could have been better funded, but instead all this money is going to feed the war budget. Um, And like with the civil rights act, there's often a lag between the time that a law passes and um, that its effects are, implemented and really felt. So in a lot of places that saw uprisings in 67, conditions were still really awful if you were a black person. Um and these conditions
0: know. are are so much the result of all of these contradiction, racism fueled contradictions of of the New Deal order that great is trying to ameliorate, but they're profound contradictions that have created you know, this this newly segregated metropolies across the, the, the country and skyrocketing Black unemployment rates. And then on the other hand, as you mentioned, he is deepening American involvement in the Vietnam War, which is creating or intensifying contradictions within the liberal coalition as it existed at the point. And so these things are all like coming to a head.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Johnson went into this with his own personal biases that I think he wanted to see concern confirmed, um, much like today, you know, he hoped to hear that they were outside agitators, and that there was <laughs> some kind of far reaching conspiracy to destabilize the nation. But also, and I think this goes to the point, maybe that you were making earlier, he also wants to hear, I think that the violence is connected to black people's sort of like you know, lack of culture or moral values. Um, And this is surprising because when Johnson was younger, I think when he was 20, he spent a lot of time teaching elementary schools in a border town in Texas. And while he was there, he saw all this poverty and unfairness and it marked him for a long time. And so I think in some ways he really was a believer in like, the civil rights laws that he helped pass, but then when it came to the commission, it's just a completely different Johnson. It's almost like he's, you know, suppressing his own lived experience and trusting in the word of these very influential Ivy League social scientists who have his ear. So, you know, for example, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a historian at Harvard. And but was also a presidential advisor, like in 1965, had personally handed Johnson a report that, like, blamed the conditions of black people on the so-called broken family, you know. And so I think
0: tangled web of pathologies of the black family.
1: That's right, and I'm like, I'm not going to devote any time reading the report myself. But I <laughs> Me <would> neither. Imagine, <laughs> I would imagine that it probably omits like this country's role in like forcibly separating families, you know, for many generations. Um, but the point is that I think, yeah, Johnson was expecting the report to also reflect Moynihan's theories. Um, but in terms of what the commission ended up finding so they surveyed they broke up into teams they they had um they had more formal hearings in Washington DC where they had really prominent civil rights activists um and leaders you know comment on what they thought was the cause of the uprisings but they also um split up between 23 cities and just like went on the ground and actually talked to um people in Black communities to ask them, you know, what was going on, what was motivating their participation. Um, and they, they had really interesting finding. Um, like they understood that usually the incident that triggered the uprising um, was sort of the last straw. You know, in reality, there had been weeks or months of these like tension heightening incidents is what they call it in the report. Um, They also acknowledged that very often the police was involved in these prior and final incidents. I think in, I mean, this is sort of implied in the report because the language is softened, but I, I read it to say that like the police was, you know, brutalizing people. Um, It was also interesting that they found that many of the participants weren't militants or quote-unquote you know young thugs even though i think that's perfectly fine if they had been but um (laughs) (laughs) but you know they were like well-educated politically informed middle-class black people who participated as well um and then a few other interesting points um so they noted how little representation black people had at the municipal level um they noted that there were that the responses to the uprisings were just completely inadequate, and some of the the responses included, you know, additional training and providing equipment to the police, just providing more sophisticated weapons, and often that just, you know, ended up making things worse. And then, of course, they found no conspiracy or organized activity, um, but they present all these, um, conclusions in really stark language and, um,
0: and just beautifully written language. Really. It's a, it's a powerful, some powerful statements.
1: I mean, they call out white racism, including the fact that in many places, um, the police symbolizes white power, white racism, white repression, and those are their words, not mine. Um, and yeah, they really call a spade a spade. And then in terms of recommendations, they, um, so they, they support like a massive investment from the federal government. They want um, the federal government and states to commit to supporting local governments with um, delivering services to black communities. Um, they wanna increase the presence of, of government agencies At the local level, they advocate for um, including and involving residents of the ghettos in policymaking through, like, you know, things like legal services and legislative hearings, um, and generally just involving Black people in policymaking. they do that thing where they ask for you know additional like law enforcement reforms um, which I'll just kind of skip over <laughs> they do ask for more diversity as well um, and but really on the federal on the federal level they ask for a commitment of resources to target um, grievances that black people identified when it comes to employment housing and um they also advocate for a more inclusive and generous um, social safety net.
0: One of my favorite lines from the report has always been, quote, segregation and poverty have created in the racial ghetto a destructive environment totally unknown to most white Americans. What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. It's it's just remarkable in twenty eighteen that that these findings, which so directly indicted the structural forces, the political economic forces that shape inequality in this country, were were a take by very mainstream liberals. It's it's just so remarkable given what has happened to liberal politics in the neoliberal decades that followed shortly thereafter?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, reportedly, um, the commission had you know internal disagreements, especially over how it um, how the report treated the police brutality problem, um, which some commissioners thought was too radical. Um, And they disagreed also on how to pay for all these recommendations. Like, the tensions were so bad that at one point, four of the most right-wing commissioners threatened to write a minority report. Um, But I think, like, what that demonstrates is that just among themselves, like, there was already a lot of compromising and toning down that went into the final report. And it was still pretty... You know, bombastic, I guess. And I think my own my own imagination has been so crippled by the limits of our modern day liberals that I can't even really imagine what the ungagged version of that passage you just read, you know, actually looked like.
0: Yeah, uh, Corey Robin has written about this. I think about how he doesn't take, as a leftist, take take joy in. Liberals and liberalism being so so fucked up that actually um, from a left perspective, we would much prefer a more intellectually serious radical social democratic current predominating amongst liberals <laughs> and this <laughs> this right. report this commission's report reminds me of that um so Johnson was not pleased, I take it, but the commission you write outmaneuvered the pres- and i didn't know any of this history before. You write that the commission outmaneuvered the president and the report became a popular sensation. What happened?
1: In the public sphere, Johnson totally maintained face. He pretended that he wanted the commission to act independently, but behind closed doors, he was so stealthy. Uh, The administration kept track of everything the commission did. Mostly they had... um, The lawyer on the team, David Ginsburg, who I don't think is related to RBJ, um, but they would have him report to the administration regularly on how things were going. Um, The more right-wing members of the commission represented Johnson's interests on the commission pretty well, I think. So I think he was banking on them to help sway the more left-wing ones. But there were some surprises in there. So Johnson became increasingly annoyed that one of his Republican appointees, um, the mayor of New York City, Lindsay, uh, I should find his first name.
0: John Lindsay. (laughs)
1: John Lindsay, that's right. Uh, That John Lindsay was apparently acting too progressive in commission meetings. Um, And so that got back to Johnson. And he, along with a, a member of Congress, would like try to threaten Lindsay like access to federal funding through HUD, you know, just just as sort of a shakedown to get him to come down. <laughs>
0: charming, <laughs> charming behavior. Very subtle. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> um, so to undermine the report, everyone was leaking. The administration relied on leaks. Um, and what ended up happening is that a, probably one of the more right-wing members on the commission leaked a non-final draft of the commission's report to the Washington Post. Um, and then the Washington Post called the commission and said, we're getting ready to um, publish this. So to get ahead of the Washington Post, the commission moved their release date of the final report. So initially the final report was supposed to come out on March 3rd, but after receiving a call from the post, they released a summary on March 1st. But um, the summary used much stronger and I guess you could say more incendiary language than the main report. So yeah. it's very likely that phrases like white racism wouldn't really have appeared in the final report, or if they had, they might have received less attention just because the report was so long. So, in a way, so it really John backfired and- <laughs> on Johnson. That's right. Ironically, it backfired. Um, but another great thing the commission did was they struck a deal with a small printing press ahead of the release of the report, again, because they were concerned that maybe Johnson wouldn't make the report public or that he would just ignore it. So that helped distribute um, the report in paperback form. And then it immediately became a bestseller. And um, I think there were like 23 reprints. Um,
0: Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So looking back 50 over the past 50 years, you say that while there have obviously been advances in some quarters for black Americans, that the overall picture is is pretty bleak. And one thing that's that's obvious is that ultimately the problems identified by the Kerner Commission were often not dealt with through things like desegregation and social democratic reforms, but but rather through this new form of containment that in some ways supplanted the second ghetto that the Kerner Commission was writing about, i.e. mass incarceration. What what's your take looking back on where we are compared to what the commission was describing?
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to say what could have been if another democrat had won and like immediately after johnson chose to not uh, rerun for to not run for president um but instead we got nixon and we got you know people who were interested in implementing law and order policies so part so the kerner report did help um with passing the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which also is turning 50 years old this year. Um, But that, you know, even that hasn't been enough um, to prevent the sort of ongoing redlining that we continue to see 50 years later. Um, There have been some gains um, with regards to education and um, the Economic Policy Institute actually has a great report called 50 years after the Kerner Commission, where, you know, if your listeners are interested, where they could find, um, you know, these more precise statistics of where we're at now. But essentially, we've made some education gains. We've made some gains with respect to representation. Obviously, we've had one Black president in the last 50 years. Um, And, you know, we do have black people in high positions both in government and in the corporate world Uh, and I don't want to like disparage that but then the setbacks in you know when it comes to public health are pretty stark Um, schools are resegregating mass incarceration has tripled from where it was 50 years ago and I I mean I think that may have stabilized stabilized or may be on its way down but um
0: but a lot more slowly than it than it went up
1: right very slowly and the outlook is only sort of optimistic if you leave out what's happening with immigration related incarceration yes um so (laughs) it's just not great and of course the new york times recently had um with some really great, um, visuals, uh, they reported on a study that I think came out of Harvard very recently that still showed that there are huge disparities in outcomes for black boys versus everyone else, even when you control for class. Um, and so and that- they also
0: really had a great, uh, editorial. I don't know if you saw it on the anniversary of the fair housing act. Um, And the reality is so much of that act was never really enforced, especially the requirement that communities receiving federal dollars affirmatively further fair housing, i.e. like desegregate their housing. Um, Obama started to do that a little bit um, for like the first time ever, I think, after Nixon shut George Romney down back in the day. Uh, And Ben Carson, of course, has already undermined that.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to know what could be if we were actually enforcing, you know, even the pretty moderate that we the pretty moderate statutes that we have on the books. Um, so, yeah, it is a pretty grim um, picture, I think, 50 years later.
0: One other thing that comes to mind from what you've been been saying, in terms of the, the political context of at the time and in Vietnam is that I've was, have was spoken to Aziz Rana on the show a number of times about this subject, about how the kind of liberal Cold War order created this artificial divide between domestic and foreign politics that was premised on this idea that we can have some sort of social democracy at home while waging imperialist wars abroad. And I think the way that that Johnson's involvement, deepening of the U.S. involvement in the American War on Vietnam, how that undermined and and help fracture the liberal coalition necessary for social democratic reforms in the U.S. I th- I think that's just such a clear reminder of how how bankrupt that separation between the domestic and the foreign is.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now I want to get to the core of your argument, which is that our struggle for equality in the years since the Kerner Commission has been straitjacketed by the way that many people think about equality. And uh, I want to quote from your your article in New York Magazine. Uh, You write, The problem is striving for equality only with respect to opportunity is myopic. This approach focuses on fairness of process while ignoring inequality in outcomes. It reflects the very meritocratic mentality that has helped sustain wide gaps between black Americans and white Americans, between the genders, between classes, and between broader demographic categories. Envisioning our future through an egalitarian lens would require us to seriously reconsider political ideologies that embrace equal outcomes. More broadly, it would compel us to prioritize the well-being of the collective over that of the few, even if this came at the expense of the few. I thought that was just really brilliantly put Just like in other words, uh, liberals are more inclined to talk about equal pay for, say, like janitors of different genders, but not the pay gap between janitors and CEOs. Tell me a little bit about the bad work (laughs) that's been accomplished by the way we think about equality and and how that can be unlearned productively.
1: I think that equal opportunity, um, that sort of frame of thinking um, has really no qualms with like seeing the less lucky or the less skilled or the less able among us suffer if um, if we provide opportunities that like are that we deem to be sufficient to sort of paper over the resulting inequalities um, that come from these same set of opportunities that we give um, and I think that when our goal isn't really equal outcomes, then um, we can sort of fool ourselves into thinking that the policies we're supporting are affecting a positive in the world. And we can be at peace with, you know, a minority of people accumulating disproportionate amounts of capital and wealth and just really not disturb our status quo very much. Um, And um, I think that, like, equal opportunity is is still helpful and certainly we should be using every tool at our disposition to root out, um, you know, discrimination on bases that we've decided democratically that are, you know, illegitimate reasons to, to prevent people from accessing certain goods. I also think that like with equal outcomes, they can, that equal outcomes can help us measure just how equal an opportunity actually is. Um, and I think that frame of mind also frees us to pursue more aggressive measures to restore um, balance. And so with respect to income and wealth, for, inth- for instance, I think that means that um, you know, to use another analogy, that means not just using the tide to lift all boats, but maybe also taking measures to t- to cap how high some of the boats can go, if that makes sense. And how, um, and
0: how big those yachts can be. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um, and in my in my piece, I want to make sure I mention. So I. about equal outcomes and then i use democratic equality as sort of the framework um, to put that all together and i think that you know that that's sort of a more holistic way to think about these issues which by the way are not my invention there are philosophers like amartya sen and elizabeth anderson at the university of michigan who have spent um, much more time than me (laughs) thinking about what democratic equality can look like Um, But I think that the strain of egalitarianism that I talk about in my piece is very much in tension with capitalist values. Um, And I think it like threatens the individualism that's very endemic to American culture. Um, And, you know, the sort of like meritocratic um, theology that justifies like the massive accumulation of capital by some people and then readily finds moral fault in people who have less Um, And I think, like, realistically, you can't reach equal outcomes without being open to massive transfers of resources and capital, including a downward redistribution um, of income and wealth. So in the past, that's, you know, the kind of talk that's invited red baiting, I think, accusations from liberals and conservatives. Um, So you know i i think i'm proposing something that's very much in tension with with the mainstream and people who are comfortable with equal opportunity but maybe thus far haven't been able to push for equal outcomes
0: i think that's really interesting what you're saying about what you're saying in terms of critiquing the political discourse around equal opportunity while emphasizing that it sh- the idea shouldn't be thrown out because if we take the commitment to equal opportunity seriously then we do have to deal with housing and school segregation and funding inequities and those sorts of things um and uh but the the way that equal opportunity is politically deployed currently in the United States is pretty pretty pernicious. And I think the, the key to its perniciousness at present is the way that equal opportunity is is caught up, like you say, in this idea of meritocracy. And meritocracy, the way that functions is just as a, a, a key ideological force to legitimate the political economic status quo in this country, because a meritocratic system is one that punishes so-called losers and rewards the the so-called winners the rich
1: that's right and i hope i'm not painting you know a picture of liberals that is too like i i mean i want to be generous i don't doubt that there are many liberals who have whose heart is in the right place and who very much care about inequality um but i think there's often a tension with between sort of how they feel about the idea of have of people who have less having more and also you know the pressures from the institutions and the corporations and the influential individuals on whose funding, for instance the Democratic Party or its more prominent members, you know, depend for support. And so I think maybe that explains why we saw people like Hillary Clinton and John Lewis have such a strong negative reaction. To any proposal for free college, you know, during the two thousand and sixteen um, campaign, and I use free college as an example because I think that's that's a policy proposal that would help bring us closer to um, to the sort of equality that we seek, you know amongst people. and 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 the left, on the other hand, I think we've traditionally enjoyed much less institutional support, so maybe <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the thing is we have nothing to lose. <laughs> so,
0: Wait, know, we haven't I been know. in power recently. <laughs> I, shit. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's why we've been so much more comfortable with um, with this idea of equal outcomes.
0: It seems to to me that one thing you're you're getting at is some of the. The the tangled debate between liberals and the left, and not that there's a monolithic liberal position, monolithic left position by no means, over things like class and identity politics, and mm-hmm. uh, on the policy level, why liberals are cool with things like affirmative action, which many on the left also support, but see as insufficient um, to actually uh, not just, you know, having a they people on critics on the left see it as insufficient to have a demographically representative ruling class and a ma, and a more demographically represent, representative impoverished class the problem is that is that class
1: distinction in the first place yeah i agree with that i think that affirmative action on its own isn't a sufficient tool right much like equal opportunity policies on their own tend to i think be insufficient to um, sort of get to the inequality that plagues our society. But in theory, I think the principle of affirmative action is very compatible with um, like a more egalitarian uh, policy framework that focuses on equal outcomes. Of course, that's assuming we're talking about actively recruiting and including, you know, people who come from underrepresented or minority groups. I wouldn't be as enthusiastic when affirmative action is applied to state legacies, um, at colleges. But I think that, (laughs) yeah, the
0: Supreme court hasn't showed a lot of uh, critical interest in legacy admissions. It's, (laughs) it's interesting. I can't think of why that might be. Hmm. (laughs) That's
1: right. Um, but So I think when universities were playing around with affirmative action and what that looked like and went as far as even using quotas, which, you know, I think eventually was challenged in the Supreme Court, um, like that forced them on focus, that forced them to really think about what it would take to up their numbers of enrollees. Um, And I think it's really, it has encouraged colleges to think deeper about how much work they should put in to get more black students to get more hispanic students Um, i know my alma mater which is a large state school in nevada realized at some point that it wasn't enough to send you know a bunch of pamphlets to local high school juniors you had to start talking to kids much much earlier like even at the elementary school stage Um, and i think Once you start thinking that far forward, maybe that means that as an institution, you have to throw your your weight behind research and programs that will make sure that the, the kids that you're trying to recruit will be more equal to their peers early on. So that by the time that they're juniors in high school, they haven't fallen so far behind that like giving them an equal opportunity to apply as juniors is essentially meaningless. Right, because so much else in their life at that stage isn't equal. All of this is to say that I think affirmative action is one of many effective tools. And you know, as you were mentioning, it's gotten a lot of pushback in the courts, and I th- I think its success has a lot to do with like the amount of challenges that it's that it's faced. Um, but I think, yeah, ultimately, I I personally really hope that affirmative action will. Survive this administration and maybe be expanded in in the future.
0: Yeah, let's hope. um, But uh, all things are somewhat uncertain (laughs) at present. the The last thing I want to talk to you about is the last thing that you write in the article, and I want to quote from it again. Left leaning politicians with an eye on the twenty twenty presidential race have a chance now to harness the energy that is already shifting toward democratic equality. Speaking more boldly against socioeconomic inequality is a start, but it is also not enough. To advance toward what we could be a kinder, fairer, more egalitarian America, and in the process earn the support of left social movements, we must move past the shackling timidity of equal opportunity rhetoric. And it's our responsibility, too, as we enter yet another election season— to ask ourselves whether the candidates and policies we stand behind will actually make us more equal. I think that's powerful and spot on. And my question is, there, there's this notion that emerged during Bernie Sanders' primary challenge in 2016 that... Black people are somehow like more hostile to to socialism, social democracy, political radicalism, more generally, than than white voters. What do you make of that, and how left forces this year and looking forward to twenty twenty can best build bridges between this false divide that that is often created between so called identity politics and class politics.
1: I think that what you describe is definitely, I mean, that was very much a recurring theme uh, during the 2016 campaign. And it was very frustrating to witness to see, you know, as a Black leftist woman, to see prominent Black pundits, writers, and other figures with a large platform sort of imply that Black people just have. Just to speak on behalf of all black people and to say that we are just generally not receptive to socialism and you know, political radicalism. And honestly, I couldn't always tell if it was coming from a place of cynicism or just a lack of information. But either way, I think to imply that black Americans and um, you know, continental Africans are somehow inherently hostile to these um, ideologies is really a erasure on a couple of levels. I mean, historically, Black sharecroppers, as I think you know, like in Alabama, were organizing under the banner of um, communist led unions in the 30s. The Black Panthers were very open to and, you know, influenced by Marxist ideology. Um, And then on a contemporary level, you know, there are lots of Black socialists and radicals walking around. I mean, I'm a nobody. I don't expect to be on anyone's radar. But like Angela Davis, Kianga, Yamada Taylor, Alice Walker are all living, you know, breathing examples of Black radicals. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, if we're talking about history, it's true that like welfare programs that should have been universal and that should have um, benefited everyone were rife with racism. And were often intended only to benefit the white population. Um, you know, whether we're talking about public housing or parts of the Social Security Act of 1935. So I understand the distrust, um, and it's important to acknowledge how, you know, some of the New Deal programs, which I think are like a good embodiment of socialist and radical values, how some were, you know. Only aspirationally universal, and practically speaking, they were not. But at the same time, where they were implemented, they were effective at lifting people out of poverty. And in fact, they even lifted many Black people out of poverty on accident. You know, like it wasn't intended for us. Kind of just worked. So it seems to me that our instincts moving forward shouldn't be scrap the whole idea you know, scrap policies that have egalitarian um, outcomes in mind and, you know, that, which happens to be in line with like socialist ideologies and more like radical politics. Um, And instead, like, why don't we just think more seriously about designing programs with the explicit intent of yielding more equal outcomes, which necessarily will require us to think very seriously about what that means for black people in this country. Um, But I'm optimist cautiously, and optimistic cautiously, and I'm encouraged by the fact that regardless of the projections from the pundit class, that black millennials who participated in the democratic primary, I think seemed very open to the kinds of policies that would Yield more equal outcomes for everyone. And you know, for the record, this isn't a pitch for Bernie. I'm not much for cults of personality. I, I just want to point to what I think is a very positive development in um, in the political currents. Um, and yeah, my hope is that shrewder candidates on the left will see that, realize how open we are. Um, to the policies and that they won't that they won't shy away from proposing bolder ideas that explicitly, you know, call for these more equal outcomes.
0: Very well put. And I think that just as a as a, as a caveat, though, liberals are obviously the, the main villain and neoliberals are obviously the main villains here. The the left is getting its analysis wrong and not doing anything remotely politically productive when people on it insist on on downplaying racism as a factor in American life in favor of an exclusive focus on class. I don't think that happens as much as as liberals tend to characterize caricature the left as doing, but it does happen sometimes and it perpetuates um, this this false divide between racism and class exploitation of this country, when history and the present teach us very, very clearly that the two are are profoundly interlinked. And uh, yeah,
1: (laughs) I couldn't agree more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Vanessa A.B., uh, who is coming to take your yachts, uh, thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me.
0: Vanessa A.B. is a consumer protection lawyer in D.C. and a social media editor for Current Affairs magazine. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin magazine. As Marx once said after noting that revolutions are never made to order, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, as does you telling your friends and loved ones about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is something that we like a lot. And last but not least, do find us on Patreon.com/slash/theDig, where you can make a contribution and thus gain access to our weekly newsletter. Even a few bucks is a big help.